Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Songs from a Padded Envelope. As you may have noticed by my accent, uh, I am neither Steve or Ben. Uh, I am, in fact, Dave Hooligard, uh, also known as singer-songwriter 12 Days in June, uh, who you may remember from episodes one and six of this very podcast. Um, I am delighted beyond measure to be your host for this very special episode as we're about to flip the script and place Steve and Ben on the opposite side of the microphone. Uh, so why am I here? Uh, well, I received an email from Steve a few weeks back with an amazing idea. Uh, in what can only be described as a fitting bit of serendipity, a 25-year-old demo has recently resurfaced. One featuring two budding young rock stars from the United Kingdom named Steve and Ben. And what better place to share and discuss this remarkable discovery than right here on Songs from a Padded Envelope. And since I was the very first guest, they invited me back to lead this journey down memory lane and bring the podcast full circle. So with that said, it is my absolute pleasure to be here and my absolute pleasure to introduce my guests at this time, Steve Swindon and Ben Clay. Gentlemen, welcome to your podcast. <laughs> Thank you, Dave. Yeah, thanks, Dave. <laughs> well, there is a lot of great stuff to cover here. Um, but before we jump right into it, I want to take you guys back to the beginning. Uh, because as, as musicians, there's always that, that one band or that one record that kind of opens our ears and inspires us to cross the line from listener to creator. And I'm just curious who or what that was for you two. Oh, you're older than me, Ben. Do you want to go first? <laughs> you chronological want, order. You want me to? Yeah. I, I'm, you got that one in nice and early, didn't you, mate? I'm older than you. Yeah, Signi significantly older. Um, probably wiser, maybe oh, not. Undoubtedly, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, God, I've got, I don't know. I don't know where to go with, whether to go with first single or first band I really loved. I think, I think probably um, from the notes I've got here, I think... Um, uh, and because he's come up in lots of conversations in with other people, then um, John Peel, who was a much, much loved and much admired DJ that lots of people will know. And he, one of the things that John used to do was the Festive 50 at the end of the year, um, where he would come um, present the, the, you know, the 50 top all time. Well, at one point it was top all time tracks. Um, so it often stayed quite... Um, quite static you know teenage kicks was always at the top and stuff but i remember as i guess it would have been around about 1981 so i was kind of 12 12 years old and listening to and hearing a forest by the cure for the first time um and i think that was yeah that was a song that i suddenly i didn't quite understand the music i didn't quite know what it was about but there was something very very different um about it um so yeah probably that and then obviously i kind of with the, the guys that i ended up hanging out with and making music with a couple of years you know after that um the sort of boys don't cry that that album became one of the sort of key texts for us so probably that record the a forest and uh, and boys don't cry was probably a very very important record for me what about you steve I kind of got bitten by the music bug from a really, really early age. Um, my dad had a big music collection and, uh, and I was, you know, I just would just explore it and go through his big Elvis fan and, 
Um, so I'd listen to a lot of Elvis and the Beatles and that kind of stuff. But it didn't necessarily make me want to play. Um, but then kind of sort of middle school years started to get into sort of synth pop type stuff. I mean, pretty cheesy. Like growing up in the 80s, there was a lot of that to choose from. So, the, you know, <laughs> Thompson Twins and Howard Jones and Nick Kershaw and those sorts of bands. And then in mid but in middle school, I formed my first band with my friend Chris, who had a little tiny Casio keyboard, uh, <laughs> a little, you know, just one note at a time, Casio keyboard. And there was another kid in the school called Dean who could play the drums. And we didn't have a drum kit in the school, but we had a set of bongos and a snare drum, good enough. And so we'd sneak into the, into the music room in, uh, in, in lunch times and our music teacher, Mr. Taylor, would let us go into the music room or we'd just sneak in there. It was a hut in the, in the corner of the playground and, we'd just get, and, and we started writing a song and there was five of us singing on it. Chris on his little Casio keyboard with like single note kind of melody going on and Dean, who was a big kind of Rick Buckler, the jam fan, beating the living daylights out of these toms with drumsticks, <laughs> these bongos. And we wrote a song and entered it into the, um, into the school um, Easter Festival, it was called, and we won. Um, and so this was, I must have been, what, thir uh, 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 11, 12? And the prize for winning was half a day in the recording studio in the local oh, wow. theatre. And so we went in and recorded that song. I've still got the cassette, cassette of it. And we went in and recorded it there. And and I stayed after everyone had gone because I was just completely transfixed by the experience. I absolutely loved And I wanted to know everything about it and going home and playing it back. And I became friends with the the guy who runs th that uh, studio. Um, so it was, at, it was at that point that I, I knew I wanted to keep making music. And that continued for a bit, and then I heard She Sells Sanctuary by the Cult. <laughs> 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 so. Well, that, that, was, that was a track that had no bongos <laughs> on it, mate. Yeah, very, very low yeah. in the mix. Yeah. I, I, re <laughs> <laughs> I remember us having a discussion at some point about whether or not it was illegal to have bongos on a record and like trying to come up with, you know, are there any good songs with bongos on? Maybe there <laughs> are. Yeah. Well, I sure hope if they ever yeah. remaster that album that you can hear the bongos turned up way louder. Uh, well, speaking of, of bongos, um, you know, we, I think when we all get started musically, we kind of lean toward a specific instrument, you know, maybe something that really jumps out. Sometimes it's by a matter of chance, you know, sometimes you get together with a group of buddies and one person can already do one thing and one person does another, so you take what's left. But what I'm curious is for, for you guys and your experience, did you have an instrument of choice that you kind of took to straight away or... or were there others that you tried out until you finally found your right fit? Do we, should, we, should we switch it around and you go first on this one, mate? Okay, well, I wanted to be a drummer but uh, and have a, a drum kit, but um, we lived in a very small flat uh, and there was five of us, so there was no room for me to have a drum kit. Um, so I, I did get a little keyboard, um, but I wasn't... I did used to sit and play on it all the time, but I wasn't really drawn to sort of lessons and stuff. Um, so sort of in a band, it was it was singing to start with, and then um, guitar came along not long after that, um, and writing songs, because that's the thing that I started doing was writing songs um, rather than trying to play other people's songs. So yeah, I, that, uh, that's something that I was drawn 
to really and and still really really love when I pick up a guitar it's more often than not to create something rather than play someone else's songs even though you know I, I, I loved playing along to Disintegration by The Cure over and over and over and over and over <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm sensing a theme here. <laughs> <There is a> <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, for me, I guess this is an opportunity to crowbar my uh, my sister into the conversation because um, I think another thing, another one of the things we've covered in the in the episodes has been sort of pivotal people, key people that have kind of brought music to you. And for me, you know, I'm one of three kids and uh, I've got sisters that are seven years and five years older than me. And my older sister, Suze, um, we grew up, you know, kind of 15 miles outside of London. And she kind of was coming to music at the sort of, um, around the sort of tail end of the punk scene. And she was going to see bands like The Ruts and The Undertones and Injury and The Blockheads and stuff like that. And then, um, she used to get the enemy every week and I grew <laughs> up with her kind of leading the way for me. She kind of, I remember her playing um, Talking Heads Psycho Killer 12 inch to me, which I now own because she passed, passed it on <laughs> to me. Um, yeah, so she was the kind of person that really, really turned me on to significantly exciting and different music. And why does she figure in this story? Because, well, because she had a guitar, which she never played. I don't know when, she must have been bought it for a Christmas or a birthday, and it sat in her room. And then one day, my mate, Tom, came round, and he had a guitar. And uh, we'd been listening to music together, and we decided we would have a go. So we borrowed her guitar, and, uh, and we wrote uh, some terrible songs. And I, I remember breaking I, well I broke the string one of the strings on a guitar which she hadn't played for about three years and she was absolutely livid and really distraught at me so yeah so, sorry when you hear this Suze you know I didn't really mean to break it but um yeah but yeah so the guitar so from yeah from that on kind of that moment on we were listening to a lot of music and it was just uh, I guess it was just a matter of time and probably guitar seemed to be the easiest place to start yeah it really does seem to be a place that, you know, it just feels natural to start. I mean, and, and sure, not for everybody, because I've got drummers I've met over the years that said there was never any doubt, you know, after hearing um, Stairway to Heaven or something like that, where it was just like, nope, drums is it. That's all I ever want to do. Um, so we've talked a little bit about kind of early influences, um, and, and we've talked about kind of your uh, gradual uh I guess your shift into becoming musicians rather than just listening to music. So when did you two enter each other's lives? Were, were you friends first who wanted to make music together or, or was it music that brought you together? And, and Ben, I'm going to stick with you on this one. Okay. Well, I think um, we touched on this story at one episode, one episode, I think it might've been your episode, but um, yeah, we were, I think I count myself as very, very lucky that in the, I guess it was early nineties, um, I was working working um, with people with learning disabilities in a fantastic place called Rosa Morrison. It was a day centre, um, and uh, that was the place where I met not only Steve but also um, Nanish and Paul, two people who I went on to. Well, currently Steve and Paul and Nanish and I play in a band to this very day. Um, and those there have been three really key relationships for me. So yeah, so I remember I was working at Rosa Morrison and uh, I remember going up to to the staff room 
one morning and there was a, a, a young man there with a, with a beanie hat on his head, sat in the corner of the room looking a little bit sullen. But um, it was the, obviously it was his first day there. And uh, yeah, that was, where, that was where we first met. It was where the story began. And I guess kind of um, when, you're, uh, when you're into music and you're playing, it's one of your first kind of first part of conversations, isn't it? It's about when, you make, when you meet someone new, is about sharing you know, are you a musician? Do you, are you into music? Blah blah blah, and it kind of it kind of kicked on from there, really, didn't it, Steve? It did. I had a Lemonheads baseball cap on. You did. That's what it yeah. was. Yeah. Fantastic. And ben walked over and said, "Oh, do you like the Lemonheads?" Then, and that, then that was uh, I was so I was put at my ease because it was, uh, <laughs> yeah, fir- first day in the job, and I and I hadn't been living in London that long. So the, the, the Rosa Morrison was in North London. Um, and I hadn't been living there that long, and I moved to London to sort of pursue music as a, uh, I'm going to say the C word, career. Uh, <laughs> 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 um, and yes, yeah, and, and was living in, oh, living in, a, in a shared house with um, uh, some other, other musicians from, from my hometown of Lowestoft, and uh, sleeping on the floor and kind of bum- bumming around um different agency jobs and stuff and i'd been working in a in a a residential place and then this job at rosa morrison came up and i yeah and uh, much like ben i feel eternally grateful to have walked in through those doors and met all the people that i met there uh, you know uh, in, which includes nanesh and paul and ben um because it's astonishing to think that we were all there at the same time and have that that shared kind of you know, love of music and, you know, particular kinds of music and found each other in that setting. Um, it's kind of remarkable, really. I'll, I'll, I'll forever be grateful for that. Um, and I don't think it was that long into knowing one another and being work colleagues that we started to make some music together. Started to, uh, I don't think it was that long. Um, I'd perhaps been jamming a bit with... Uh, there's another guy from Lowestoft who'd moved to... Uh, to London um, to go to university and uh, I was hanging out with him and he was a really good drummer and I played with him when he was in Lowestoft and um, he knew a guy who played bass who was at his university and we'd had a f- we'd had a f- couple of jams together um, and it was it was going all right and it was quite exciting to be working on something new and in that sort of you know to be hitting the ground running moving to London and getting going with music quite quickly um, and I think I'm trying to think now, Ben. Actually, my memory uh, is is a little fuzzy on this. But did did you <laughs> you came into those rehearsals before Kev came along? And uh, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So there was a drummer from Lowestoft who moved up to join the band. Um, but yeah, it wasn't that long before the f- there was the four of us playing uh, and rehearsing. Yeah, my fir- my first memory was, was is of you know taking guitar around and plugging in in your little tiny little bedroom in mm. East Finchley and which I think we were, were we working on growing small was that the first tune that we worked on together it was and it was and it wasn't the most straightforward of songs and but it became <laughs> really obvious really quickly that we absolutely played off each other like in that way that when you find uh, somebody that you can collaborate with and work with and it was effortless and easy and really and really productive and my god you know ben's bringing something to 
this this idea and and it moved on really quickly we both found yeah found kindred spirits i think well i love that i love that song to this day mate i mean i mm. think when we you know we we had the the opportunity to play some shows and um, with some you know play some shows re you know how, how, a couple of years ago three two three years ago yeah and i think uh when we talked about you know other songs we'd like to resurrect growing small i'd love to play that live yeah. again it's just kind of yeah, it is it is a very different song like you say and it's just yeah it's got a fantastic lyric in it and lots of lovely feel but yeah i remember i think i, I can sort of tap into the sort of slight nervousness about being in the room being in that room with you at the first time and thinking well what's going to you know what's going to come out of this what is this like you know you know you've got to because you've got to kind of you've got to do a little bit of proving haven't you yeah you know you've got to love well what can you do and then but like you say it was it was um it was very very easy yeah, yeah. and i've been working with uh making music with my friend ferg for so long he and i had been in a band for years just the two of us for the most part um we did have some uh, some additional members from time to time we uh, who f uh, musicians from Lowestoft. um but he and i had been making music for years and years and years he was a you know a, a brilliant engineer and programmer and had loads of kit and so we were able to write and record in his little in his little bedroom that doubled as an amazing studio <laughs> um so but it was it was it was new to me to be sitting and writing uh just you know on guitars and stuff it was that was kind of new i'd only done a bit of that really um but yeah it was great yeah really good well, while we're here in this particular train of thought, now that we've covered, you know, how Steve met <laughs> Ben, uh, <laughs> and we brought you two together, and we've talked a little bit about kind of the early days of playing music together, what do you remember about your first proper band practice? Did you feel like when you two got together and you started composing that you were you may actually really be onto something, or did it just kind of feel like, yeah, this is just something I'm going to do for now? Um, well, I. Um, I, I remember what I'm remembering first of all is uh, is meeting Kev for the first time, Kev the drummer, and sitting in the sitting in the car with him while he um, he had this whole well, of course, no one could see this, so I'm holding my hand up in front of the screen, but he had this rig, he had this kind of routine. This uh, routine is the wrong word, isn't it? But he would tape his fingers up, wouldn't he? Like every before he played, before he rehearsed or played drums, he would put tape on across all of his knuckles, and I just remember, I remember remember that for some significant reason <laughs> you know that that was quite quite pivotal I, I don't i don't know if i have i don't have a distinct memory of how the first how the first rehearsals were i mean i remember how the ongoing rehearsals were because mm. <laughs> uh, would the first rehearsal have been at survival then do you think it was at survival yeah uh which is a, a studios in uh, in north acton in london and and at the time it was, yeah, pretty scrungy and <laughs> not, yeah, it, it it was what you want out of a rehearsal studio. You know, you you don't have to be too precious about the place, and they don't mind if you you know what you do really, as long as you pay and you're out on time. And uh, and I remember going in there, and the kits are all beaten up, and and Kev had moved up from Lowestoft and was sleeping on my bedroom floor. Um, 
and did that for quite a while. And my bedroom was only really big enough to, Tiny, to have a it? single bed. <laughs> so Ken would squeeze himself onto the bedroom floor. And, and uh, I remember that really fondly, actually, because he he's a remarkable drummer and a really lovely guy. Yeah. And and he'd, yeah, he'd crash out on the floor and, uh, you know, we'd chat <laughs> and fall asleep. And uh, yeah, a, re a re really lovely bloke. But he, yeah, he moved, so he moved up to come and play music. And um, that first rehearsal, I think, I remember feeling quite um, a sort of sense of responsibility, if you like, um, having been sort of, I guess, somewhat responsible for bringing us to this point. Um, um, and uh, I should mention Nick, the bass player, at this point, because he was also really into it, really, really into it, loved doing it. He was the guy that was at university and uh, with the original drummer, Jamie. And uh, um, so I think we were all pretty excited. And uh, my memory of, the, of that first rehearsal is that it wasn't difficult. We had some stuff to do. We'd kind of met in bedrooms and, and got parts together. And so we knew, so we were kind of excited and ready to start playing and then from that moment on from that rehearsal on we were pretty much on a weekly basis um every tuesday possibly we would and and maybe maybe sometimes more than that but every tuesday over to survival studios and re rehearsing and we would you know we we took the rehearsal seriously we had a we had a good time and <laughs> as well you know but we <laughs> but we did work on the songs pretty hard. And, yeah, and, at least, and for, at least for half the rehearsal. At least for half of it. <laughs> 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 but, but Nick would come back from, he lived in his, uh, he'd go home to his family home in uh, um, the West Country, um, in Swindon, funnily enough. And he, um, uh, he would drive back for rehearsals in the summer holidays and the Christmas holidays yeah. and stuff. And then he'd drive back to Swindon again, which is probably... I don't know, three hours, two and a half. That's three a hours. big. Tr that's a big troll. What a commitment, eh? Yeah. It was, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And you know, <laughs> sometimes we were in a state of advanced refreshment. Um, <laughs> well, 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 all, always by that point, by the yeah. end. Yeah, yeah. I'd say in my experience, just getting everybody to show up in one place was half the battle, right there. So <laughs> oh, we were certainly committed, and we were certainly up for it and i think because mm -hmm. it did feel really it really easy um i mean it wasn't without the sort of tension that happens within a band situation obviously but sure but the but the uh, the overall vibe was that we really liked playing together and that's that was showing increasingly in the music we were making i think and your intention at this point was to really make a, a go of it right like to actually start playing shows and and certainly to start tracking and, and all those things like you you guys seems like you knew pretty early on that this was you know a, a passion that you you wanted to see through this wasn't just you know playing playing with some friends as it you know met your fancy i think it was i think just reflecting on that before the conversation today i think it was very much part of the story for most musicians at that point you know that was kind of that was kind of how how you saw things you know that you would uh you would make some music and you would make your demos and you were chasing, you know, you were chasing opportunities and the, and the chance of, of a deal. And mm -hmm. clearly there were, it was a time in the, when in the industry where there was a lot more money slushing around and deals were, deals were available. You know, we were, we were in amongst it with people, with friends. You, you had friends that were making it, 
you know, who were, get, who were signing deals and making records and stuff. And so it was, yeah, it was definitely part of the aspiration. I don't know whether we, I don't know whether we always followed it with the kind of vim and, vig, vim and vigor that we might have done in, ter, in, ter, in that sort of pursuit, but it was definitely the intention at the time. It was, and I think it probably that uh, um, that intention and that um, sort of drive, that drive, that ambition to try and you know put to to get your songs recorded and and for people to hear them, and I mean that's what has in, totally informed this podcast. You know that those experiences when when we were sitting down to talk about should we do this podcast that the moment in time that we're kind of at at the moment in this story is totally informed what we're doing with, with, with the podcast. I mean, there were other experiences after that with other bands and things, but um, it was that time with, with, uh, with Red Five as we ended up being called. We were originally called Reef, and I think we've had that story on the podcast before, haven't we? We just handed that name over here. But yeah, yeah we were. Yeah, uh, yeah and then yeah. Red Five came along but the, yeah that I mean, it was the, the red five stories definitely in the background of um this podcast for me and i i do want to talk a little bit about band names because you know this is something that has come up on previous podcasts so we don't have to tread too much into the stories we already know but one of the things that people love is to know the story behind your band name and i, I mean, especially being a, a solo artist i get this all the time uh, well, I did before <laughs> before lockdown when we couldn't play anymore. But but when I was still able to get out and play, um, I would have people interrupt me in the middle of songs to ask me about my band name. Um, I'm guessing well well inebriated at that point. But uh, <laughs> I, I always think it's a fun question to ask people, what are some of the other names you considered? Because I think sometimes those are even better stories than the one that actually, you know, how you came up with your band name. So... I'm curious if, like, how early on you guys landed on Red 5, you know, as kind of your, your favorite, uh, and, and were there any others that maybe you thought, oh, this is going to be the one, like, we're going we're gonna to go by this name? Oh, that's a good question, Dave. Uh, there's, in the back of my mind, there's something niggling at me that there was, a, it was a toss-up between Red 5 and something else. When Reef came along pretty quickly, and we all really liked it, because it was just, a, like, a nice word. And it sounded kind of <laughs> nice. it looked kind of nice written down and uh, um but then when we shifted i have a feeling there was something can you remember what it was ben there was a it was a toss-up between red five and something else i wish i could mate but unfortunately i can't yeah, yeah. i'm pretty sure <laughs> yeah. if yeah. if kev or, or nick are listening to this um, i feel certain that kev will be screaming at his uh, phone or whatever he's listening to. I, I'm, I just, I'm, I'm glad that there, for me that there aren't any sort of torturous memories of how the band name came together because in the band that we currently play in, which is, you know, uh, Flotation Toy Warning, well, how did you arrive at that? Well, I remember four of us at that time sat, sat down together going, we, we want a three, like a three word um, name or, or something like, like Guided by Voices, but something like that. Um, mm -hmm. And I think, oh, I don't know why we settled on flotation toy warning, but um, it, probably because it was the least offensive of all the lists that we came up with. Um, and I remember, fi I remember finding the list like a few years later, like maybe ten years later, like this handwritten list of all these possible three-word name combinations. Um, there was a two-word name that was was put forward by um, by Nainish, which was Sheriff Jelly. 
and <laughs> I, I can't. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm can't. Yeah, maybe we should have gone with Sheriff's Jelly. Maybe there'll be maybe there will be another band like that. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, so I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad that we settled on Red Five because it was. Uh, it's it seemed a fitting name, didn't it? It did, and Star Wars loomed large in our lives, mm-hmm. and um, yeah. It, that, I mean, that was that was it really. It was it was a chance to have a band name that kind of linked to Star Wars in some way. <laughs> That's why I love the name, right? Because when you when you name a band Red Five, you know you immediately are gonna get people to react that also you know hold a, a love of Star Wars because you hear a name like that and you're like, oh man, this band's cool. They like Star Wars <laughs> like I do. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. you know, it just it it, it automatically says something about your band before anyone's ever heard the first note, uh, which I think is a a really brilliant strategy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, we, we talk a little bit about the, the genesis of, of red five, you know, we've, we've got you guys together. We're playing music. Um, So let's, let's go back to 1995. Oh, if only we could, (laughs) Uh, but this was the the time of your demo. And I want to, I want to get an understanding about what the UK music scene was like for you guys, because um, I know what it was like over here, uh, <laughs> but but I'm so curious, what was happening? Who were the biggest influencers that were kind of driving the scene as best you can remember back then in 95? That's a good question. I mean, the, there was, I mean, there was a lot of really exciting stuff happening in, I, I guess in, in UK music, there was, we weren't quite at Britpop, we weren't quite there, were we? No. Um, but there was the kind of well, I was really uh, just massively into like stuff that was on Creation, Ride, Ride, and uh, um, Swerve Driver, obviously. Yeah. Um, yeah. Teenage Fan Club and uh, yeah, the the, the Creation output pre Oasis, which was re- all really super exciting. Um, but then you had bands like the Wonder Stuff, and in fact, um, Eight Legged Groove Machine by the Wonder Stuff was a massive record for me. I mean, just it was slightly before '95, but it was, I mean, just all of the all of the stuff that they, uh, that run of four records, even Eight Legged Groove Machine, Hup, Never Loved Elvis, and uh, Construction for Modern Idiot. Those four four records, my goodness, uh, just what a collection of songs. And I think, um, despite having quite I think quite varied taste in music and I like lots of different stuff. I am a sucker for a chorus and uh, you know, the, 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 yeah, a decent melody in a chorus is going to, yeah, grab me by the scruff of the neck and the wonder stuff (laughs) did that in, in absolute spades for me. Absolutely. Incredible. And it's funny you mentioned about um, Miles Hunt before, because when, I suppose we'll come on to this a little bit later, but a bit later on in my musical career, um, Miles became an acquaintance because his, uh, his label that he was running wanted to sign the band that I was in. And oh, wow. uh, and so I got to know him a little bit and, and be in his company quite a lot. And everybody got quite, you know, okay with that, but I never quite got past. <laughs> Fucking hell, it's Miles Hunt. I never quite right. got past that because, <laughs> because of those records. Like, oh man, and everyone, everyone else was kind of into that, into that music and stuff. But it, w- it was such a formative experience for me. I couldn't, ju- I couldn't do the cup of tea, mate. You know, it's all right. How are you? It was just the, 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 the regular chit chat thing, because yeah, he, lo- he loomed too large. So th- I think that 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 stuff, um, not so much Ned's Atomic Dustbin and and. Uh, 
Uh, but de- a pop elite itself, definitely. I, lo- I loved, I loved the pop elite, and Cardiacs were massive for me. There we are. I've got it in. <laughs> what? Just, sorry, you just reminded me of something very quickly. Just, uh, so I met you guys through the '90s indie Twitter account. Yeah. And just in a, in a funny bit of tying this together, um, there was a post on the the '90s indie Twitter account about the Wonder Stuff. Uh, who is near and dear to my heart. I, I love the Wonder Stuff like few bands. And I just, I made a, a comment, like something that was a little bit, a little bit deeper than just, I like this album. You know, I, I kind of, I touched on like, wow, this was really Miles Hunt, like at the peak of, of what made the Wonder Stuff great. And I, I was just kind of just, just rambling. Um, and Miles Hunt actually liked my comment. <laughs> Uh, and, and, and then I had that moment, right? Like I didn't even, I didn't talk to him. I didn't meet him, but the fact that he saw my, my tweet and liked it. And I was like, I, I I can die now. Like I've accomplished everything I will ever need to. That's so great. You know, um, (laughs) yes, yesterday, day before yesterday, one of my musical heroes actually from that, that time as well, I was always a big micro Disney fan. I don't know if you've ever come across the work of micro Disney, Dave. I have not. Okay. Um, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll send you some links. Uh, but <laughs> but the, uh, the, the singer and uh, one of the songwriters, Cal Coughlin, is um, po- like a musical hero for me. And at the, that, the 95, 94, 95, 96, he um, had disbanded Micro Disney and um, was in a band called Fatima Mansions, who were, oh, yeah. and I just, I love, in fact, I followed them around on tour and absolutely loved Fatima Mansions. And then his solo stuff I really love as well. But anyway, I retweeted something from his the other uh, on his Twitter account the other day, um, saying what a you know peerless lyricist he is and an incredible songwriter. He follows me on Twitter now. Honestly, and the thing is, I'm totally second, like th- thinking through. Every tweet I send now is so, a well. Cal <laughs> Cochran might see it. It's got to be. I've got to word this right. <laughs> <laughs> lovely, lovely. Yeah, it's completely reframed Twitter for me, which is a good thing because it's a bit of a cesspit, really. But that. But, oh yeah. Um, yeah. No, I'm quite excited now. To he followed me back. Shit. Yeah, that's, that's incredible. <laughs> yeah. And I've, I realize that's been my my problem with social media is that you start thinking about the access that you have to people that you really have no business having uh, contact with. And you can say like, well, you know, they they get so many messages and they see so many themselves tagged in so many posts, like they don't even see it. Uh, but then once in a while, you know, somebody will, will react and it's it's just such a, a cool experience. And I, um, I would, you were talking earlier about creation label and, and kind of bands pre 95. And for me, uh, one of the big ones was the Boo Radleys, and the the Boo Radleys didn't didn't break huge over here in the U.S. Um, I think Giant Steps was probably the the biggest album, and and, and that may be just kind of universal, but that's where they really started to gain uh, so much more traction over here specifically. But for me, Everything's All Right Forever is probably one of my top ten favorite albums of all time. Uh, there is just so much magic happening on that record. And Martin Carr's birthday was just a, a few days ago. And I thought, man, here's Martin Carr on Instagram just talking about non-music stuff. Like, this this guy is so far removed from the Boo Radleys these days. He doesn't care. Um, but I thought, you know, 
in what other avenue of life am I ever going to have an opportunity to reach out to Martin Carr and just say, hey, can we talk about everything's all right forever? Just just a little bit. Uh, and sadly, no response. But I'm still holding hope that someday he'll he'll see that message and say, I would love to. Yeah, surely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, Ben, I'm, I'm curious if there were any standouts for you during that time, uh, that kind of mid-90s, and, and if so, were any of those kind of key influences on, on Red 5? I don't, I don't know. I mean, I was always more drawn to American bands, really, for a long time, Dave. So American guitar bands, you know, starting with Pixies and Sonic Youth mm. and that kind of era of bands was really where uh, a lot of my passion has sort of been put into. and probably less infused by the kind of the, the the English scene at the time and stuff. And I think, well, I know that one one key American band for, for us as a band was definitely Buffalo Tom mm. that, oh, um, yeah. that yeah, we yeah. shared. We all kind of, well, certainly me and, and Steve and Nick, the bass player, shared a passion for and went to see a whole heap of times. Um, in fact, we had a little reunion two or three years back where we, where we went to see them again. And um, and had met Bill met Bill Janowitz in the pub afterwards. And we, we did. Oh, that's awesome! Um, and it was yeah, <laughs> the, yeah. So they were they were a significant band. Mm. Again, you know, wonderful melodic pop, but uh, yeah, yeah, beautiful. So yeah, I can I think American the sort of American guitar guitar music was more my cup of tea. Though just trying to Google stuff as as you guys were talking just coming across PJ Harvey and then whilst PJ Harvey bears absolutely no relation to the music that we made in Red 5, she was someone that I saw in the very beginning of her career and kind of followed through and uh, you know what an amazing musician she is. Oh yeah, without question. And, and it's funny because this actually dovetails nicely into uh, another question that I had for you guys and, and that's you know over here in the US at that time in 95, you know, we were really being bombarded with, you know, what the the magazines were all dubbing the second British invasion. And, you know, we had, of course, you know, Blur and Oasis were really at, at the front of the pack. But we were also being exposed to, uh, to bands like Suede and Pulp uh, to a lesser degree. Um, and I was just wondering, like, if it worked both ways, because, you know, you're mentioning, uh, you know, stuff like the Pixies and, and Buffalo Tom. Uh, but I'm curious about any other like kind of decent American music that was making its way over to the UK, um, like anybody that really just kind of forced you to to take notice. Um, well, I've always loved Beastie Boys, um, and uh, I think around that time, well, that was mm. was that Paul's Paul's boutique and then into Check Your Head was sort of around around that time. So that was, I mean, damn, it was amazing, just incredible, right? Mm -hmm. Abs absolutely amazing. Um, I think, um, uh, I mean, mentioning Buffalo Tom, they were, I mean, that was such a, it was such a big influence. And we would finish our rehearsals with a, by, by covering the bus as well. We would do a really would, long, yeah. <laughs> indulgent <laughs> version of the, of the bus, but uh, just loving it. Um, God, what a song. <laughs> Incredible. Um, off the top of my head, I'm not sure. I mean, uh, oh, well, Pavement. Uh, when oh, yeah, yeah. when course, pavement yeah. came along, yeah, yeah, yeah. that that kind of yeah. changed quite a lot of stuff. That first pavement record uh, started in Enchanted. Well, it's probably '92, wasn't? It? I remember seeing them when they came on their first mm -hmm. tour. So they came over and pl played a support for someone, I think. But then on their first proper tour, seeing them at the waterfront in Norwich, and just 
not being able to just couldn't believe it and then mercury rev of course yes yeah which uh those well all all of those records where do you start with a band like mercury rev i mean your self-esteem was (laughs) you you start with your self-esteem and yeah yeah and and stay with that yeah Yeah, start and stay with it yeah (laughs) Yeah. i mean if you haven't played your self-esteem for a while just when you stick it on god damn like nothing Mm -hmm. you've ever heard yeah like nothing you've ever heard i cannot agree more uh i remember uh being exposed to them with the guitar player in a band i was in uh at that time you know kind of mid 90s and just it really was like nothing else I had ever heard. And to this day, you know, I, I still don't know <laughs> that there's a direct comparable. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that seeing that, that uh, seeing them at the, at the waterfront in Norwich as well, just blimey, unbelievable, <laughs> Unbel- unbelievable. <laughs> David Baker's presence on that stage. Mm. Well, take your eyes off yeah. him and the, and the noise you were being hit with. Oh yeah. yeah. I remember they toured for um, See You on the Other Side, and by the time that record came out, they just, they really never achieved, like, kind of mass awareness over here, and so when they, they were touring for that record, they played at this tiny little club in Portland, Oregon called EJ's, and it just so happened that I knew the guy that was doing bookings for EJ's, and I think I, I must have call-bombed him every day for at least a week or two just trying to get on that bill <laughs> and finally he very politely calls me back and he's like dave that's a monkey presents thing so it's not gonna happen <laughs> those, and i think i knew that all along <laughs> see those those um see you on the other side and boses those are tough listens aren't they you've really mm-hmm. you've really got to dedicate yourself to to put yourself through listening to those records i'm not to not to say that you shouldn't there's you know there's some deserved stuff to be to be had amongst them, but um, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, your self-esteem, please. If you, yeah. Yeah. if you haven't, if you don't own a copy of that, go and buy it now. It will yeah. blow you away, absolutely. Yes, the kind of exp- the expanded version with car wash hair on it. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's yeah. maybe yeah. slightly before '95 as well, but just yeah, that. Only slightly. Yeah, only slightly. We're, we're in the wheelhouse, right? <laughs> <laughs> I think just going back to going back to you know mentioned Sonic Youth before, but I think they're a band that will carry you through, well, years and years and years mm-hmm. and still on. I was listening to an um, interview with Bob Burt the other day, who's you know who drummed on the first rec- the first record, and um, but yeah, some he was giving some shedding some some great light on how they came to fruition and. You know they've been through many iterations and of course they you know they no longer exist and you know imploded in a rather unfortunate manner but they left behind them a huge canon of work which is so impressive you mm-hmm. know and and now you've got you know you've got lee ronaldo making great records and kim gordon making great records and thurston moore making great records and steve shelley playing on drums for all sorts of you know all sorts of combinations of people so yeah, still some some fantastic music being made out of those four people as well. Yeah, and for as many decades as they've been able to do it, just you know, speaks to the talent of everybody that made that band what it was. It it wasn't Thurston Moore's band by any stretch of the imagination. Um, so we're in the mid '90s. You know, we've we've now arrived at the infamous Red Five demo that brings us here to this discussion today. And thank you for letting me take the long way to get here. I just thought there was a lot of really cool stuff to talk about on the way. But 
now that we're 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 in red five and we're we're in a studio and i'm i'm thinking like your your goal is probably to cut a really solid demo because you know you've talked about uh that was just kind of what everybody did it was the goal was to cut a demo get it heard and hopefully find some of that lucrative uh label money uh <laughs> and, I, and i have to say um when you sent me the demo i was kind of expecting you know 90s caliber demo you know like nothing nothing to be ashamed of but what you sent was like like studio quality to the likes that i never experienced in my my youth uh, in the 90s so i want to talk a little bit about that experience and, and what do you remember about recording that in a studio was that your first time ever ever being in one uh, well not no I, I think we we we'd all had experiences of recording uh, quite okay. quite a lot prior to um to red five um but that studio was in mornington crescent uh near near camden and it was it was the back room of a of this guy's house <laughs> Pete, Pete. St stinky Pete. <laughs> he was he was chris and smelly pete uh, and but, but funnily enough uh we'd we the band that was in there before us was the Jesus and Mary chain. And was it? Wow. Yeah, yeah, they were. They'd just left like the day before. They'd been in, in the, because he apologised for the state of the place. <laughs> the Mary chain had been in for the last week or whatever, doing some demos with him. And uh, yeah, I mean, it was it, it was in a bit of a state, <laughs> but we didn't, really, we didn't really care. I mean, I, I don't I don't have like crystal clear memories of it, other than. Um, we were there we we were there for two days i think um and uh, well kev would kev would string me up if i didn't mention that he nailed all of the drum tracks in one take <laughs> playing to a click because he did uh and for one of the songs that's no mean feat i mean for all of them that's no mean feat but the one in particular was very complex so he worked um yeah he was up for it <laughs> let's say and then it was um i, I think it was, it was fairly easy i don't i don't remember it being very difficult um i have to say i've got no memory of recording the vocals at all and even listening back to it thinking i don't remember singing these songs for these, <laughs> for these demos which is really <laughs> disappointing yeah i think there was quite a contrast between um how we experienced it i think well i think you, you know i was you were always really really seemed to find recording dead easy like i know you found like you'd often be nervous before like a gig and that before a show but in in terms of recording you were just like no come on get on this is this is this is how it goes plug the guitar in play the guitar put a mic on <laughs> sing the song it was just like you know you, i guess you probably because you had done so much recording at home with ferg and your youth and that that you were absolutely 100 percent confident about going for it and getting it whereas me i definitely had a bit more of a bit more red light fever you know i kind of um I, I've always, I have, I do enjoy <laughs> recording these days, but I very much kind of enjoy more, you know, playing with someone else a bit more of a, you know, getting a bit more of a live vibe going. And sometimes that, yeah, the red light moment when you're on your own with the cans on is, can be so bloody isolating. And I do, I do remember that on one particular song, there was a string bend at the end of the chorus that I just, for the, I, for the life of me, I, could, I, I couldn't get it. 
I just couldn't get it. Um, I mean, on the demo, it actually sounds fine. It does sound fine. So clearly I got it, but I think it was a little bit torturous. I, rem- I think it might have got a bit, um, there might have been a bit of tension going towards the end of that, you know. <laughs> I, hope it get, I hope it gets it this, gets it this time. Yeah. yeah, there may be a bit of that. I think you're probably right about, I, I, I do really love being in the recording studio and creating in the recording studio. I do really and i think it does go back to those formative experiences and being given the opportunity to go into a studio when i was only like 11 or something and 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 just absolutely loving it um and then yeah working with ferg over and over and over and over recording 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 just and and being super creative um (laughs) yeah for for years so it just always and yeah i I kind of do miss that and actually when we went and made music again for the state-sponsored jukebox stuff um that um i think those experiences of recording that we'd had um really helped because we we didn't go in with finished songs and we just Mm. experimented and yeah and and were able to really let Mm -hmm. us let ourselves be free and creative in a way that was so rewarding such a the best it's the best recording sessions we ever had yeah, with with state sponsored jukebox, it was so it was ridiculously easy, wasn't mm, it? Yeah, like, I mean, like you had given, you had come in with some very, you know, some some good templates of songs and that, and you had your lyrics wrapped up and finished in that. But like you say, there was a lot of room for experimentation, and we had, and you know, at that point when we were doing the jukebox stuff, we had the the um um we had the studio for like three days on the trot, didn't we? So we were just decamping. We were living, we were just living in the studio, you know, you know, working, working till the dead of night until you were almost ready to drop. And then, and then getting up the next morning and just starting again and doing that, <laughs> doing that again. And it's a lovely situation to be in. And the other thing that comes to mind for me is just there is, there is something about um, relationships and how relationships develop and a comfort around that. And the you know more the experience of being spending time with someone recording that gradually pays dividends, doesn't it? I think, or it certainly has if um, for me in terms of recording with mm-hmm. you, Steve, and um, and thinking about the the last flotation record and being able to go off and and record guitars, just me and Anish to go and record guitars together. There's something about relate how relationships form that just makes things processes much much easier. I guess it's. A, um, you know, there's a degree of telepathy that kind of develops, isn't there? You know, and uh, I'm feel, feeling confident, feeling like someone's got your back, I guess. No, telepathy is such a great way of, of describing that. And yeah, I mean, you think you nailed that. <laughs> so I would be remiss for not jumping to the headline here because the headline of this story is that you thought this red five demo was lost forever like in your mind you had recorded these songs to never be heard again and then it was your old bassist that just recently found it in his attic after 25 years and i can't even imagine emotionally what that must have felt like because you know just to recover something you thought for sure was was gone um and I'm just wondering what what was going through your mind when you got that message from him telling you that he'd found it. He sent me a photograph of the sleeve, um, w- which was so evocative of uh, that time, and mm-hmm. and I remember, uh, and I'd forgotten that sleeve, and then I saw it, and I was, and and it was 
it was just like oh my god he's fa he just he just said look what i found uh and yeah knew exactly what it was and then there was a a, a gap of a few weeks this was during the summer holidays um uh and then there was a gap of a few weeks before he he's a a, a, a deputy headmaster in the school in london before he could get into school and digitize the tracks to send them <laughs> over um, so we patiently waited. I sent the picture over to Ben straight away, and we were both like, "I can't believe it!" Because there was yeah. a there's New York song, which isn't the song we've chosen for the for the demo, uh, for the for the podcast, um, was a song that we have a, a a huge amount of fondness for that we thought yeah. we'd never hear again. And we talk about it, you know, fairly frequently. You know, when 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 this subject comes up, oh, wouldn't it be great to hear that again? Oh well, <laughs> uh, I'm never going to. And then hearing it, uh, putting the 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 demo on um uh was uh, like whole body chills like sticking my finger into the mains and being completely transported back into that those moments those memories in the, the in the way that songs can contain you know there's there was a muscle memory there there was an emotional memory there that was so powerful I don't I don't know that I've experienced anything like that linking to mm. sort of my my former self and creative work and whatever um and it was an it was absolutely joyous and I and I felt <laughs> I was I was elated I mean yeah, yeah absolutely elated yeah I mean I I definitely felt very very sad that uh, the thought that would never hear that particularly New York song like you say which we'll go on and you know talk about in more detail and that but you know, it just had assumed a real weight of significance. And there was kind of, you know, I mean, I, I do get a sense of loss that I don't own everything that I've ever recorded anyway. I wish I had like a shoebox with all those demo, demos stretching back. And I just, I don't know why, why do you get rid, why did I shelve things and get rid of stuff? And where did they disappear to? And why wasn't I more careful? But that was definitely a song that I, you know, a real weight of emotional significance. So to, like you said, to kind of when the demo showed up and then the anticipation and then I remember, well, you sent the tracks over to me and I was heading home from work and um, I couldn't get on the train. I was like, I'm going to listen to all three of those straight off one, two, three. And hearing that song, like you say, drag back the whole thing about, you know, songs being attached to um, a moment, a place in time and that, um, yeah. What a, what a fantastic thing! That's awesome. I mean, and maybe maybe this doesn't happen to you, but I'm I'm curious. Like when you when you hear something, I mean, you, you have to imagine that after 25 years, there's going to be a lot of uncertainty, right? Because it's like, why well, I, I I think I vaguely remember what these sounded like, but I'm about to press play and find out for sure. Um, so in that anticipation and and hearing the songs. Do you feel like they they lived up to your your expectations, your memory, or, or you know, were you were you critical, or were you able to say, you know what, these are damn good? Oh, I felt really proud of them. Um, at, at Size of the smile, which is the song we're going to close the podcast with, um, had a really profound effect on me, more so than listening to New York song actually, because that song really is the the sentiment of the lyric is all about um, meeting. Um, Nick and Ben um, specifically actually with zero disrespect to Kev because I'd already met Kev and we we knew each other in, in my hometown but meeting Ben and Nick and uh, you know love uh, f finding you know two guys that I um, absolutely fell in love with um, and 
had so much fun with and uh, connected with in a way that was really profound, really, really, really profound. And to be a for and for that in turn to be the people that I was in a band with, let alone friends with, was massive for me. And that's what that song's all about. And then when I listen to it again, <laughs> to be connected <laughs> with that sentiment um, in a way that was, I just wasn't, I just wasn't ready for it. And it was, oh my God, yeah, I, I, that, I, I remember having to sit down and put these words onto paper to kind of express how I felt about these two friends that I'd made uh, and the way that, I've, you know, that, those relationships. And I was plugged straight back into that moment. Um, so I felt, and and for them not to be shit was was a, just a real bonus. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think they're shit. I think they're. <laughs> well, I knew I knew I had absolutely no doubt that New York song was going to sound fantastic because in my head, well, it, I knew it was a brilliant song. I was pretty sure that we'd have had to have done something really really bad to have fucked that song up. Um, <laughs> And fortunately, we didn't. But like you say, Size of the Smile really, it's the one that leapt out. I mean, I think all three songs are great on the demo, but that one in particular and the way that you just described the, the meaning of the lyric and that, and you know, and, um, yeah, uh, very, very fortuitous to have come across um, such great friendships. And it's, uh, it's a beautiful thing that music is something that brings people together in a really, really different way in a really significant way, isn't it? And um, yeah, it's a great thing. Well, here we are at the tail end of 2020, the year that we thought would never end. So we are 25 years removed from this demo. And Ben touched on this a little bit earlier, but I'm, I'm going to ask you to ex expand a little bit on it. And that's hearing these songs now, all this time later, do they inspire you to want to revisit those songs kind of with your, your current abilities and, and see where it goes? Or do you look at them more as a snapshot in time that you're appreciative of, but you're happy to have kind of moved on? Okay. <laughs> um, I, don't, I don't feel any desire to revisit those songs in particular because they feel like they've, been, they've had their moment in time. They've, they've been done due justice and they sit there in that kind of canon of history of music that we've made together. Um, in, as for other songs, definitely some of the other songs that we've made further back, there were a couple of tunes, like we were talking about Growing Small earlier. There's another song called that we did in Red 5 called Favourite Song, which is, which is fantastic and I would love to play that live. Um, and then a whole bunch of music that we've, um, and we were lucky, we we're lucky that we are still making music together and um, that we've been through a long journey with the current band that we're playing in Flotation Toy Warning, where which you know Steve was heavily involved in in recording all of the first album, um, and now is now is in the band, and we're getting to go out. You know we've had the opportunity to go out and play, have some amazing experiences, playing live together. And in fact, we were talking about the other day on the, la on the last shows that we played with Flotation, um, we've done a lot of stuff in France and we did some show, a show in Paris where we played the sort of the key song of the, of the last Flotation record, Moon Goose Analog, a really, really long song. And we hadn't played it, we hadn't rehearsed it with a band before we went out to do the shows and we booked a rehearsal in a little studio in France 
and with the idea that we would we would rehearse this song up and it's not if you know flotation to a warning it's not the kind of process that's not the kind of thing that, that band does they um you know they don't working sort of at take, speed do you mean yeah <laughs> working at speed or taking or taking bold steps like that but actually it was um we went and played that song a couple of times and and in paris it was particularly special it was just uh i think it's my favorite moment playing on a stage ever and there's a lovely kind of instrumental moment and the the guitars lock in it's like a twin guitar line that locks in with the drums and i remember turning around and looking at steve and it kind of it encapsulated all that was special about um about them making music with together over the years you know so yeah so no no desire to revisit those songs but every desire to carry on making tons and tons of music together yeah absolutely and yeah that moment in in, in paris that whole show um was yeah it was it was a little transcendent for me I, I don't know where we went to and what what kind of but everything just locked for that show the audience the the, the link with the audience the the rest of the musicians on stage the, the experience of playing with flotation is incredibly special it's hard fought uh but the rewards are, are, are massive uh and i feel really privileged that, that this kind of creative relationship that ben and i have had for a long time now is still you know we're still able to um visit that and 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 build on it through through playing in flotation and and i, I mean doing the podcast as well actually has been For sure it's totally been, you know akin to that stuff you know it's a con and we, we both get so much out of doing it the people that we've met um you know, starting with you dave and 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 going going through all the people that we've had conversations with and um has been a a, a, a real joy um there's a little bit of me that would love to go into a rehearsal room with Nick and Kev and Ben and blast through those songs because you know why the fuck not those songs are great and it would be it would be an absolute blast to do that but beyond that probably not I know Nick really wants uh, regrets not having recorded a song called just one of those days um oh does he yeah okay yeah uh, he, he loved, that was his favorite I think. Wow. And uh, I didn't I didn't know that was Nick's favorite at all. Yeah, I think so. Uh, uh -huh. he, he definitely regrets not recording it. Um but but you know, I think it does sit in a particular place and time and uh um probably beyond you know, if we're ever able to to go into a rehearsal room and make that noise again, it would be a really lovely thing. I don't know how much we'd get done. <laughs> 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 but it would be fun. Uh uh, and yeah, I mean, a couple of those songs are, 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 are really special. But yeah, no, I've, there's 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 more to be done, you know. There's more new songs to be recorded, and uh, and and I think that's where the the excitement lies, I guess. Well, this is your podcast, so you know what happens now, right? We've <laughs> we've reached the end of a lovely chat, but now comes time to share this demo with your listeners and for this uh, episode you've selected the song size of the smile um i have to tell you that when you sent me the songs to listen to before this this is the one that i immediately took to they're all fantastic songs but i listened to this and was immediately transported back to my teenage years and i i know i said this to you in an email steve but it's like this is exactly what i would have been listening to 
So uh, you would have already had your, you know, your first American fan. Uh, <laughs> I would have been, I would have been there cheering you on. Um, but this song is special, and and it and it does remind me a lot of, um, you know, you mentioned influences earlier, and one of the first things that jumps out at me is ride. Like I hear um, so much of of that sound, that style coming out um, in this song, and and that's probably why. I connected with it so instantly. Uh, you just, you hit my sweet spot. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I want to hear from you guys. Like, you know, I know the song is special to you as well, but there's a reason why you chose this one. So are there any final thoughts that you want to share with listeners before we play Size of the Smile? Well, I think it would be, it would be a mistake not to mention uh, Jace, who is uh, also by this iteration of the band we started as a four piece and we ended as a five piece with uh jace coming in to do keyboards and uh and some vocals and jace was one of the people that i lived with and actually ended up being in a band with which was possibly what brought about well it was what brought about the end of red five because um we were in a band called a and uh jace was the singer and his brother adam was the drummer uh, the brother Giles was on keyboard uh, and, and we all lived together and I and I graduated uh, onto bass guitar uh, to sort of step in and help out for a gig with that band and we ended up um, going on a, a musical adventure together he says diplomatically <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, um, which for the most part was wholly positive and 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 and, and, a, and a wonderful set of experiences and and maybe something we'll visit in the podcast at some point because I know Jace is interested in coming on and, and speaking. So that would be quite that would be quite good. That'd but Jace good. Jace cool. um, Jace joined us on vocals and keyboards and actually changed the band um, a, a fair amount because he brought a lot of backing vocals and harmonies in, which was uh, not something that we'd sort of done at all. In fact, and Kev did a little bit of backing vocal on one song, but Jace came in and brought lots of backing vocals and helped uh kind of flesh f fill out the sound a little bit more with some of the keyboard stuff and you know some of that 90s sampling uh thing that was going on i mean we were we were all jesus jones fans i'm not speak i'm not speaking <laughs> for ben here because i'm not entirely sure that he was but uh in our house we, we 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 definitely were and so there was a little bit of that going on and a little bit of the, the pop elite itself sampling culture stuff and beastie boys and and yeah, other other things but jace brought that in and in the middle eight of this song it's J jace's vocal comes in and it's fantastic it's and it's very oh, him, great you know? it's such a yeah. him moment um yeah. which i think any a fans would probably recognize immediately you know layer upon layer of vocal harmony and <laughs> uh, shamelessly just <laughs> embellishing your own voice <laughs> um, so studios are for right <laughs> yeah well, absolutely christ yeah oh my god um but yeah the the um uh, jace's involvement was was significant and um so it would be wrong to not mention him because he because he was it was a lot of fun as well as a f funny man and a very clever man um, oh, he's a lovely man lovely man brought a brilliant energy to it and that yeah that harmony in there my favorite moment in the song absolutely yeah so yeah definitely credit to jace <laughs> indeed well i i can't thank you both enough for the opportunity to come chat with you about this red five demo uh, i think that uh this is a, a fantastic song to share uh, that really is going to encompass all that was 
Uh, and I wasn't even there, so that tells you <laughs> just how powerful this demo is. Uh, but uh, I want to thank you both for your time. And Steve, Ben, always a pleasure. I hope that you enjoyed being on the other side of the microphone for this one. And uh, hey, don't be strangers. Thank you so much, Dave. Yeah, you've thank absolutely you, Dave. smashed yeah. it. I'm, I'm, yeah, you've set the bar high as higher for us <laughs> as far as presenting goes. Yeah, I'm going to go and relook at myself now after, the, <laughs> after your performance this evening. Uh, you need to introduce the song, don't you? Steve? You do, yeah. You do. It's, your, it's definitely your your shout on this one. <laughs> okay. So this is "Size of the Smile" by Red Five. Catch me. 
Songs from a Padded Envelope is presented, produced and edited by Steve Swindon and Ben Clay. Music is by state-sponsored Jukebox. Artwork is by Matt Canning. Songs from a Padded Envelope is a Hidden Hive production.